0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabinus, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're working through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're in chapter 8, obviously, today, and this passage that we're looking at really is a connection to what we talked about last week, and thematically it's a connection. So we're going to talk about some of those uh, themes that we talked about last week that are with us this week as well, and we're going to cover the whole chapter. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, here we go, we'll read the whole thing. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever pleases, whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat. And drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun." However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we pause before a complex passage today, we pray that you would give us simple hearts, that you would simply help us to see you and your truth, that you would help us to glimpse how great you are and to respond with humble wisdom relying upon you today. And we pray that this joy that Solomon commends would be ours as we consider who you are and what you've done. Lord, for those suffering and struggling in our midst, I pray that you would comfort them through your word today and give hope to us all. Lord, give me strength and clarity of mind and fill me with your spirit to proclaim your truth, I pray. Uh, Ask this all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week in chapter 7, here's what we ran up against. We ran up against something you find in wisdom literature and in trying to apply wisdom literature. Uh, There's different types of books of the Bible, and we are in a book that's called Wisdom Literature. If you're familiar with Proverbs, for instance, that is wisdom literature. And what we came in contact last week was wisdom literature shows us general principles of how God works in the earth, um, but sometimes things don't always go as we think they would go. And so last week we read about what, how, how do you view it when a young person who is righteous dies and a wicked person just keeps living to purvey more wickedness? H- how is that fair and right? Um, this week he says it this way, he's staying on this theme, verse 14 that we just read in chapter 8. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. What's he saying? There are righteous people who love Jesus, seek to obey the scripture, live right, and tragedy comes to them, and their life's totally messed up, and they suffer. There are wicked people that don't care about God, don't love Jesus, love themselves, lie, cheat, steal, harm, kill, rape, whatever category of evil, they do evil and what happens is they get more money and more health and more fame and everything goes really well with them. And yet the wisdom literature seems to say things like, wow, you know, that, uh, that, the, that the righteous person is the blessed person. So how do you deal with all that? And this is deep stuff, but this is really important because how we answer this question will really determine how we respond to the sufferings in our life or to the sufferings of those who are near us that we love. How do we respond in those situations? And maybe you say, hey, this is summertime. I mean, why are we talking philosophy and the problem of evil and the nature of God and all these big questions that people have been asking for centuries I mean, I'm on vacation. Can we keep it light? Can you give me like a two-point to-do sermon, what I'm supposed to do? Can we keep it light and life and let's have some beach ball sermons instead of these heavy, draining, thought-provoking? It's summer. Well, the reason we're studying this is because it's in the Bible and this is where we landed in the summer. And B, winter's coming. Winter's coming for everyone in the room, because if it's light and fluffy and it's great, don't make me think too hard, uh, we are all uh, in line to experience tragedy in this life. And so the kind of things he's talking about here will help us and prepare us and maybe lead us to unlearn some things that we've learned or that we've believed. See, for instance, when we read Proverbs, Proverbs are, and there's a lot of them in this book, Proverbs are general observations about how God works in his world. They are not guaranteed promises of the way things always happen. They're not just sort of sayings, wisdom sayings, that are just principles that operate apart from a holy and a personal God. So the way this works out sometimes is... You know, ideas like you hear this, can hear this sometimes where that are just rigidly in life, you reap what you sow. Now, now he just said that doesn't always happen, right? What about righteous people that have the, that get what the wicked deserve? So uh, seed time and harvest, whenever you hear that, be careful of what's being taught there. So uh, sometimes it'll be, there's a lot of emphasis on seed time and harvest. If you, I heard somebody say, you determine what kind of life you want to have, and that's your crop and then you plant the seeds that will give you that crop. So if you want prosperity, you give. And here's a toll-free number, but you give and that will provide the crop that you want. And so you give and or if you, you know, you it's it's a vending machine approach. You put in your coins of obedience or faith or whatever it may be and then you get out something and it's a very mechanistic approach where a personal god's not really involved in that. It's a system. Or sometimes, maybe it's not the Word of Faith movement like that, but it's something like this, that we we operate by wisdom principles. And when wisdom principles are the driving issue, then it's, it's a lot of teaching on diligence and uh, industry and faithfulness and various other wisdom principles which are valid and are in the Bible and we should ask God to form those character qualities in our lives, but it's sort of a an approach that says wisdom is you do these things and these things happen, but wisdom is not just a principle. Wisdom in the Bible is a person, and his name is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 said, he has become for us wisdom. So God gives us wisdom about how he acts in the world, but we don't ever take those principles away from a personal God and just seek to sort of work the system, seek to play the game, as it were. But wisdom is always tied to a personal God. And that's why Solomon says real wisdom is the fear of God. It's saying, God, you are in control. And yes, you have given us wisdom Truths of how you generally work, but you are God. And another issue we need to think about is not only that God ultimately acts as he desires, though he gives us general pictures of how he acts in the scripture. He doesn't reveal to us everything that he does. The other issue is that oftentimes our timing is right. See, the sowing and reaping teaching, the way it's taught now is I sow now and I reap now. But oftentimes the reaping doesn't happen well, in the way we want or in the timing we want. I mean, think about how certain people in the Bible, think about Paul. What kind of seeds did he sow? Oh, I'd say maybe like the godliest guy ever, uh, going up to the third heaven, writing the Bible, miracles, you know, dripping off his fingers at points that God is using him to heal the sick and cast out demons, all this kind of stuff. He planted these seeds, but what he reaped is, well, he got beaten up. He got snake bit one time. He's shipwrecked. He's in a dungeon. God gives him a thorn in the flesh. So his crop isn't like, man, I'm not really believing God for that crop. I saw what he got. We're not really, but here's the key. Sometimes we try to harvest early. And so we think you plant these seeds and this is what you will Get in this life. But what this passage today is going to teach us is that the harvest sometimes doesn't come until eternity. That sometimes we look and we say, why is the righteous person receiving that and the wicked person receiving that? And that doesn't seem fair. That's unjust. Well, this passage is going to teach us that justice will ultimately be served God will ultimately act justly. So we want to be wise and know how to apply wisdom literature and wisdom principles in a way that we are still submitting ourselves to God to be God, and that we're not being driven by wisdom principles to be our God, but we're trusting God. So I think the passage we're looking at today teaches us primarily to use wisdom, but don't make wisdom your God. Use wisdom, but don't make wisdom your God. And we'll see that I believe there's a difference in the two. So first of all, use wisdom. (coughs) Excuse me. He is going to open up a very real scenario of how we can apply wisdom. Now, how do we know this is about wisdom, this chapter? Well, look at the first sentence, who is like the wise. And look at the last sentence of the chapter. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So really, sandwiched in between these is a lot about wisdom who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Uh, These are rhetorical questions that probably mean there's not a lot of wise people running around. Ain't a lot of wise folk to be found out there. There are some. Not a lot of wise. Um, Who knows the interpretation of the thing? Because we're talking about how to respond to a king here, he may be talking about uh, who can interpret signs, dreams, visions like Joseph did, or who can interpret the, the seasons and how we should act politically. Could be something like that. But it may just mean who can interpret things, who can interpret the work of God and really understand it all. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So he makes an interesting statement here. He says there's not a lot of wise people, but, but the wise person is affected by wisdom, and wisdom does change their countenance. Uh, this is a very interesting statement, that if wisdom is the fear of God, and the fear of God is ultimately allowing God to be God and trusting God to be God and relying on God, then what he's saying is the person who lives trusting God in the fear of God, it will show up on their face. Now, again, we can't press that wisdom principle. There are seasons of grief when it isn't going to show on someone's face. But he's basically saying the person who lives by wisdom, trust in God who is wisdom, and uh, re- relies on him, that they're not going to be carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders and emanating from their face there's going to be a changed countenance not a hardness but a shining of their face um, meaning that on their countenance you can see that there's a joy there's a rest because God rules and is in control now he's going to give us some real wisdom in a certain situation so use this wisdom you there he's given us some wisdom I say verse 2 keep the king's command because of God's oath to him be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Okay, so what's he saying? He's saying, keep, the in verse beginning, verse 2, keep the king's command. Obey what the king says. In the ancient Near East, a king had all power. And so if the king didn't like you, or you did something wrong, or the king thought you did something wrong, it's off with your head. He just had that kind of power. There wasn't the checks and balances and three branches of government and a judicial system and all the things that we're accustomed to. Uh, It was more of a a monarch had, uh, in some ways, unlimited power. So he's saying, obey the king. Uh, Don't be hasty in going away from his presence. That probably is a sign of disrespect, so if you have an audience with the king, don't just kind of run off, but use some wisdom here. I mean, exercise, um, exercise respect and demonstrate that kind of respect. Verse 2, don't take your stand in an evil cause. So don't do something evil. Probably particularly don't do something uh, seditious or rebellious against the king. Don't take on an evil cause against the king anyway. Um, and Don't be evil because he does whatever pleases him. So if you take your stand in evil, the king can punish you or kill you. And who may say of him, what are you doing? Don't be a smart aleck. Don't be popping off to the king. What are you doing to the king? This this is unwise. This is a way to um, lose your head. Don't lose your head or you'll lose your head, kind of. Don't Be wise. Don't say, what are you doing? Don't challenge the king um, or do that sort of thing. So... A lot of this is sort of street smarts, isn't it? How how should you respond to earthly authority? We'll use some wisdom here. Think about it. But he's talking more than street smarts, because what he says is, in verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. It it is God that has placed the king there. And so really, um, there's a king behind the king, or there's a king over the king, and that's God. And he's saying, don't obey the king, because ultimately, in in so doing, you're responding to God. Now, we may say, well, they they had a theocracy, I mean, a God-ruled government. We don't, so I think it's different today. But that's not true, because uh, in the Roman world, uh, Paul said the same thing in uh, Romans 13. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. This is what Paul wrote. "'Let every person be subject to the governing authorities.'" For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So Paul says the same thing. Even in unrighteous authorities uh, and that sort of thing, governing authorities, realize there's no authority except from God. God has delegated authority. And uh, those authority exist from God. We don't not to resist those authorities, because if we do, we're resisting what God has appointed. So there's a God-centered wisdom here that ultimately to live wisely is to respond to authority, and in so doing, we're responding to God personally. And that goes Paul certainly takes it beyond just the king, but wherever there are spheres of life, there is God-appointed authority. So in the home, <clears throat> it is parents. In the workplace, it's your boss or your manager, your supervisor, whatever you call him or her. Um, It's that person that's in charge. In in the classroom, it's the teacher. In the school, it's the principal or the headmaster. On the team, it's the coach. In the church, uh, it's elders um, or other levels of 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 authority. In a small group, it's the small group leader. So whoever God has delegated some responsibility to, uh, respond <clears throat> with wisdom and obedience. Now, we don't have a time to get into a full ethical lesson here I left on Christian ethics. The Bible doesn't teach a blind and an absolute obedience to all authority at all times. If the authority calls us to do something that is against the Scripture, uh, then we are called to obey God and not human authority. And that's we see that in the New Testament where it is written, we're to obey God and not man. When someone says you cannot preach the gospel then the response, if the governing authority says you cannot preach the gospel, you cannot read the Bible, you cannot share your faith, then the response is to respectfully disagree and say, well, we have to obey God who calls us to share the gospel. But even there, we don't have to be foolish about it. There can be a wisdom that is exercised there. So he's basically saying one aspect of wisdom is how do we respond to authorities? And a lot of people bring a lot of grief in their life because they're foolish in the way they resist authorities. A lot of us have done that, a lot of us are doing that, perhaps even now. There's always the guy who's challenging the boss and challenging wherever he were. He hops job to job challenging the boss and wonders why everybody's out to get him. Why is everybody persecuting him? It must be because of my godliness they're persecuting. It might be because you're an idiot, because you're always resisting authority. And what happens is that doesn't go well. Or there's always the wandering person who rejects their parents' authority, who knows everything, their parents are foolish, and they know it all. Oftentimes it does not go well with that person or the person that breaks the law and resists, resists the law or resists their teacher in the classroom all the time. And, and so part of this is fear God in the way we act and don't be a knucklehead in your relationships. There's wisdom to this in all of this. So life typically works out much better to those who honor God's delegated authority. Verse 6 so use wisdom, there's an example, but don't make wisdom or wisdom principles your God. That may sound confusing, but we'll develop that out in these coming verses. Verse 6, there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Okay, what is he talking about? Do you remember he says there's a time and a way for everything. Do you remember back in chapter 3, we said God has different seasons in life. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to build up and a time to tear down. There's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn. Do you remember that passage? And we talked about how God has different seasons for us. So here he's saying there's wisdom in knowing God has different seasons, but there's a burden that we feel. There's Man's trouble is heavy on him. So just knowing that there's different seasons in life There's still a heaviness that comes on us. And here's the heaviness. He does not know what it is to be for who can tell him how it will be. So we know there's different seasons, but we don't know what season we're in or what's coming next. None of us know, is tomorrow a season to laugh or cry? None of us know is next year a season to be born where we're going to be celebrating some birth or a season to die where we're going to be grieving some death. We never know whether this fall will be a season to build or to to uh, tear down in our lives. We never know what exactly God has for us. And so there is this burden that we all can naturally carry. So we think, what is wisdom? Where's the wise man? How do I live wisely? But there are things outside of my Control. There's things outside of my knowledge. I don't know how it will be. I don't know what's coming in my life. And there's things that are outside of my control. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. So no man can control his life or death is what he's saying. So even though we can live by wisdom and we can read wisdom and we can apply wisdom, there's things that we can't know and there's things that we can't do. We can't preserve our own life at the time of death. Um, We don't know what season it's going to be. And so why does he say that lies heavy on us? Well, that's not hard to think about. Some of us in the room right now, you don't know what's coming, but there's something you're concerned about. So there's folks in the room this morning that I know where, I mean, just given a group this size, someone here has got to be feeling anxiety about your job. You don't have a job or you don't know if you're going to lose your job. Um, Or you've got, there's politics at the job that are difficult or something, a deadline that you're not going to meet. You don't know what's going to come, what's going to happen. And so there's something that lies on you. Whereas if you knew today, oh, here's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to go great. You wouldn't be, it wouldn't lie heavy on you. Or there's a health concern. There's probably someone in the room awaiting a diagnosis. And so you're struggling with, am I even going to live lying heavy on me? I don't know what's going to be. I don't know what season Is coming. I don't know what uh, there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah, I know that. I just don't know the place that's the, the time and the place that are coming for me down the road. And so there can be this challenge that we feel that we all feel and wisdom doesn't answer that. See, one of the reasons we can't make wisdom our God is because wisdom doesn't explain everything. Wisdom teaches us, Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything and a season for everything and God is the God of the seasons. But the Bible doesn't teach us what season's next for you and what season's next for me. So wisdom doesn't make a very good God because it doesn't answer everything for us. He goes on and says there's no discharge from war, verse 8. He mentions a soldier. If you're an enlisted soldier and war comes, you don't get out of it. You know, a a, a soldier, especially in these days, even more so than now, I mean, in biblical times, that's one of the most vulnerable positions you could be in in terms of life or death and not knowing is if you're a soldier, if you're you're going to war. So people don't know is what he is saying. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So talking, remember we are talking about the king and his power over everybody. There's situations in life where people have power over others, and sometimes they use that power in ways that harm others. And so there is this sense of which there's a certain powerlessness we all feel, and there's a certain ignorance we all feel because we don't know the future. So we lack knowledge and we lack ability and power. And so wisdom don't provide that. It doesn't tell you everything that's going to happen in our lives. So how do we live with that reality? Well, wisdom doesn't answer all the questions or purposes of God, but wisdom does tell us what we need to know ultimately. This is what Deuteronomy says. This is, this is how the, the, what we can know and what we don't know is spelled out in Deuteronomy. 29, 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. That way we may do all the words of this law. So Deuteronomy says that there are revealed things that belong to us and our children that we may know how to live. Here's the revealed things. God tells us everything we need to know about him and his character, and his person, and his works in the Scripture, and what's laying on your lap right now, or what's hidden in your smartphone if you've got a Bible app, or your iPad, or Kindle, or however you're reading right now. God tells us all that we need to know for life and godliness. But Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us. This is wisdom, knowing God, and God tells us everything we know. Second Peter says he tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness. But he doesn't tell us everything. There are secret things that we don't know, and he articulates them right here. Like, what's going to happen next? How, am I gonna, how can I stop the day of my death? I can't. What's going to happen next? I don't know. Those are secret things that God knows. And so wisdom is ultimately not trying to ult- know everything, but it's knowing the revealed things and trusting God with the secret things. Knowing why something happens is not the great pursuit. Knowing God is the great pursuit. And why do I say that we want to know wisdom and have wisdom principles but not make them our God? Here's the very reason. Whenever we substitute something for God, it becomes like an idol to us. And here's an idol that we can have. The idol of I must know. I must know why. I must know why. We can say, I must know why God did what he did. I must know why God allowed that to happen to me or to someone else. I must know why God didn't act in a way that I could see in that situation. In other words, I must have God explain his ways to me. And when I demand that, even under, I understand that temptation. I feel that temptation and I've, I felt that way towards God. So I get it. I understand it. But the problem with it is that we are then trying to pry into the secret things that make God God and not us. We must humble ourselves and not demand that we know everything, but know that by the revealed things, I know enough to know that God is in control, to know that God is loving, to know that God is good, to know that God is merciful, to know that God is gracious. So it doesn't tell me everything, but it tells me all I need to know to trust the Lord. And I know that's not easy because many of the things that we struggle with are really grievous sufferings. So I don't mean to make light of this or make it small at all. But there is a chafing in the soul that can happen when it just rubs our soul the wrong way. When we want to know why God and God doesn't answer. And real wisdom says that answer can't be my God or having my way can't be my God. We can't say I'll be okay if we must say you are Lord. And I trust you, I trust you, and he gives us every reason to trust him. Wisdom looks beyond today to eternity as well. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, uh, I saw the wicked buried. Now, I'm going to read these verses, but that's the intro verse, and that's key. He's talking about death here. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, so he's saying a sinful person may continue to do things that extend their life, yet I know that that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear him, but it will not be well for the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So he's talking about death, the wicked person dying. He's talking about the wicked person prolonging their life, but he's saying, but I know it will go well with those who fear God and I know it won't go well with those who don't fear God. What's he saying? He's saying that ultimately justice will be served in the long term. God will ultimately God will ultimately Uh, act in a just manner. And that is the confidence and the rest that we have in this life. Otherwise, it's hopeless to look around and see the craziness of what happens in life, the unexpected, the suffering. If we don't have a confidence that God will do right in the end, that God will rectify all wrongs, that God will judge as a righteous and a holy God, and that everything will be sorted out then we are, we face utter hopelessness. And you see that when tragedy happens and people begin to grasp for reality and grasp for meaning. That was very obvious this last week um, as the shootings took place in Aurora, Colorado. What a tremendous suffering. I mean, I can't even describe and I saw the Governor of California who was at just at a colorado i 'm sorry was just at a loss of words on TV trying to describe he was just bumbling and saying i did 't even have words I thought that that 's probably the best thing I heard on TV was him saying I, I, it, this is overwhelming because it is overwhelming, but you can feel I watched some TV on this and watched the news coverage and different you can feel the instant desire to give an explanation and to say Because it's just this—the injustice, the grief of this, the tragedy of this. What's the explanation? And you just begin to see people grasping, and I feel sorry for people on television trying to. Can you imagine being there at that site and reporting? Can you imagine the grief? I appreciate the honesty of a guy on TV saying, "Hey, I'm the governor of the state, but I don't—I don't don't even know what to say." I I respect that, but I hate to be put in that that situation. I don't want to judge any of the commentators self-righteously, because I'd hate to have a mic in my mouth trying to explain. I got a mic in my mouth right now, and I don't even want to go there at all trying to explain what happened other than what this text says. But I saw one guy, because some of the grasping is absurd. I I saw a guy on there, and he was just saying, well, what do we do? What do we do? And you could tell he's just, what do we do? And his answer was, we just, we should put alarms on the doors of movie theaters so that no one can get out and get back in without an alarm going off. I thought that's a I'm, I mean if that would help, I'm for that. That's a great safety idea. That's fine. But really? The problem of evil and righteousness and, and hatred and how all this comes together, a door alarm's not going to answer that or solve that. I mean I'm sympathetic to the idea and I'm for the idea. I'm sympathetic to the guy. But really you can just feel a grasping. And I want to say any any any, if we don't have a God of justice and righteousness, and if we don't believe this, that it will not go well for those who don't fear the Lord, and it will go well for those who do fear the Lord. If we don't believe that in an eternal eternal sense, then we have nothing. And we don't want to be popping off those kind of platitudes in people suffering. And we don't want to be a callous and just say, hey, everything's going to be okay in the end. I'm not saying it that way. But I'm just saying the Bible teaches there is a God of the universe who is sovereign, who rules, who is righteous, and will sort everything out. We know that, and we trust in that. And the secret things of why he allows something or why somebody does something or whatever, these kind of things, we, we, we bow before God and we say, Lord, we, we don't understand everything. And we don't understand, verse 14, why Certain righteous people receive what the wicked should get, and certain wicked people receive what the righteous, what we think they should get. We don't understand that. It does not make sense why a person who serves Jesus and loves Jesus and is giving the love of God to others is imprisoned for their faith in a country somewhere. It doesn't make sense why someone who's proclaiming the gospel dies boy, that person, what could they have done if their life continued? And the wicked person that kills them keeps going on and on and on and fostering oppression and hatred. uh, I'm in a a couple of discipleship groups with a couple of group of guys that are in their 20s and 30s this summer meeting with them. And uh, so yesterday we're in the meeting and this one guy, we're talking about work and how do we glorify God in our work and how do we... Um, how do we worship the Lord as those who are on the job? Just talking about trying to honor the Lord in our work. That was the whole lesson we are talking about, our work life. And uh, so this one guy just described his work life. He said, the reality is the way you move up in, in my job is you perform. And more performance means more promotion and obviously more authority, position, money, whatever. And he said... The way it often works is the person who will deceive and lie and not get caught. That person is the person that moves up. And the person who walks in integrity oftentimes won't have as much production because he went by the integrity and followed the rules, and they do not promote it. So the temptation to cut corners is obviously there. But the, 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 the inequity and the injustice of that is... So God, how does that work? The person who lies and defies you is prospering. And the person that's honoring you, the Christian there, maybe isn't, uh, isn't prospering. How does that work? Well, that's the world we live in. Frequently, that's what happens. And that's a real kind of thing that we face. And if we don't have a vision of a just judge who will ultimately sort everything out, the wicked, he saw the wicked die, and it will not go well for those who don't fear the Lord, then really life is a... It's a mess. It's a hopeless mess without that underpinning reality. So under the sun in this life, it seems sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes justice is lacking. Sometimes people don't get a speedy sentence. And so more people do more evil is what he says in this passage. We should do all that we can to alleviate injustice wherever we can. We should do everything we can to halt injustice and to pursue righteousness and to promote justice in this world today. But we must ultimately live with the reality that the secret things of God, everything doesn't work out like we think, and we trust him in it all, and that it will ultimately make sense. And these verses tell us how it will ultimately, how it will ultimately make sense. I know, verse 12, that it will be well for those who fear God. Verse 13, it will not be well for the wicked. Why will it be well ultimately for those who fear God? Well, here's why I think. The person who fears God is someone who is aware of the holiness of God. The person who does not fear God is not concerned about judgment. The person who does not fear God is like, whatever, I'm going to have a great time. You hear the callous kinds of things. I'm going to have a great time in life. Do whatever I want. If, I, if there is a God and I go to hell, all my friends will be there. So it'll just be a party. I mean, this is utter nonsense. This is not what the Bible teaches. But that is, that is what can be believed. So the attitude can be that the person who does not fear God is not really concerned about judgment usually. But the person who does fear God says, I realize that God is holy. The Bible teaches is holy, and I'm not. The Bible, Jesus said to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God all the time with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said all the commands of the Bible, it really comes down to these two. Love God with everything. Put him first above everything. And then secondly, live your life for the good of others, not for yourself. So if we really start evaluating our lives, I look at that and I say, man, I haven't loved God in a lot of things. I failed God in a lot of ways that way. I've loved myself way more than I've loved other people. Plenty of times. And we realize we're guilty before God because of that. So the person who fears God realizes their guilt and then is able to see their need for a Savior. That Jesus Christ came, God, perfect God, perfect man, and he lived a life of perfection. And he died. He gave his life. He died on the cross for our sins. Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place. So that if we see, I do fear the Lord, and I'm not okay with a holy God based on my performance but Jesus forgives my sins, and Jesus dies because of his love for me, then I can put my faith in Jesus. Christ, I want to believe in you as the one who died for my sins. I put my faith in you, and then our sins are forgiven. And when we give an account before the Lord one day, it will be Christ who paid for all our sins, and we will be forgiven and welcomed into his, welcomed into his heaven, welcomed before him, loved by him, welcomed to our heavenly Father, the Bible says, because our sins are forgiven he is our father he we will not relate to him as the judge we don't relate to him now as the judge if you're a christian god's posture towards you is not he is the judge who will condemn and sentence you to a uh, to eternity of condemnation he is the father who embraces you because jesus suffered in our place and our sins are forgiven so the person that fears god will ultimately ultimately be led to trust christ if they believe the bible And it will go well with everyone who trusts Christ in eternity. People are killed for their faith in this life. People are rejected and mocked and marginalized at times for their faith in this life. There's no promise that you love Jesus that you will be healthy or that you will be wealthy or anything like that. The Bible doesn't work that way. But there is this truth. It is well with our soul always here, and it will always be well for eternity. I would rather have my best life then than now. Because that's forever. The person who doesn't fear God, it will not go well with him. But not just for eternity. It's not just the person who fears God, it will go well in eternity. It'll go well now, too. It depends on how we define well. But ultimately, it'll go well now. And he explains how. Look in verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, He had insomnia, really. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What is verse 16 and 17 saying? He's saying, I tried to figure out everything in life. I tried to figure out why does God do I tried to see the work of God. He says, verse 17, and find out all that work that is done under the sun. I tried to figure it all out. I tried to peer in the chest of the secret things, and I couldn't get in there. It's bolted tight. You can see the revealed things, but we do not see the secret things. And what he says is, I wore myself out trying to figure it all out. I couldn't even sleep, neither day nor night, just once I see sleep. What he's saying is the pursuit of figuring it all out and trying to know why does everything happen... In life? Why do the general principles always not appear to take place here? Why is the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? Why does all this happen? What he says is you will wear yourself out trying to figure it out. And the wise guy may say, I figured it out, but he cannot figure it out. And so he has another solution. Now, he doesn't quote Deuteronomy 29 in here like I did a few minutes ago, but that's basically the solution. The solution is know the revealed things of God. Study, meditate, celebrate, enjoy. I'm going to talk about this with the men in August at Man to Man. Embrace, feed on, eat, breathe in and breathe out the word of God, the the revealed things of God, so that we know what God is like and we can trust him with the secret things. And when we're able to trust God with the secret things, then this is how we can live. Look at verse 15. I commend joy. Wow, this is the exact opposite. You try to pursue and figure it all out, you will wear yourself out, you'll have a breakdown, you'll, you'll, you won't be able to sleep at night, you'll be a haggard mess, your face will be, it won't shine, it will be hardened, as he says in verse 1. But there's another option. I can fear God That means trust Jesus as my savior, leave everything in his hands, leave the secret things to him, do whatever we can to stop injustice and care for those who are hurt and suffering, do everything we can, but realize we cannot do everything and that God will sort everything out in the end. And then we can live with joy for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil, the days of his life. That God has given him under the sun. So he's saying there's a way to have a life where you can live with joy. Doesn't mean we're not sensitive to people's needs. Doesn't mean we don't grieve ourselves sometimes. We do, but it means that we can have a joy in life. And he describes a joy. It, he's repeated this. I, I don't know. You, you've heard this theme before if you've been around. I, I didn't count. I don't know if this is the third or fourth time he said it in the book. Joy in eating and drinking and toil. He's taking the basic things of life. And he said, these are opportunities as a gift of God to experience real joy. And you can't enjoy your work if you're burdened by figuring out every Why is that work politics happening? And what's going to happen? And why did God, you will wear yourself out. If you're trying to figure out everything and give an answer for everything. If you are craving, I must know why. You you will not figure it out. You'll wear yourself out. But if you can trust God with the secret things and believe the revealed things, then the reality of it all is that there can be a joy in the simple things in life. And I love it that he picks eating. Eating and drinking. You can enjoy your food and drink for the glory of God. I don't just believe we can. I I actually believe we're commanded to do so. I think we are to enjoy it. The basics, to enjoy our work, even though it's toil and there's challenges, to enjoy it. I read a guy this week on social media. I just got to show this because I thought it was a pretty insightful. I was going to say an insightful insight, but that feels a little repetitious. This is what he said. He says, here's the common knock on social media. People mock, maybe not Facebook as much, I don't know, but people mock, certainly Twitter, and people mock Instagram for this. Uh, They mock it because they say, who wants to see pictures of what people ate? Like, I really want to see your lunch Instagrammed or tweeted about or Facebooked about, like, I really want to see your dinner at the table. And people do that a fair bit. So like I really want to say, this guy was saying, are you kidding me? I think that's what you should be putting up there. The Bible says you're to take great joy in what you're eating. So if you are eating, you've got a plate of tacos that are glorious, then it is most appropriate to have a picture. If there is a cheeseburger, a steak, whatever you like, a salad, I, I, I can't imagine taking a picture of a salad, but whatever you like. <laughs> There would have to be a dead cow involved for me to take a picture of it, and uh, but if you got a cheeseburger, you should be—that is a good thing to take a picture of that because it's what he's saying is I am enjoying God, I am celebrating God with food and friends or family, His provision. When you're happy about something, you show it. So yeah, put up pictures of your kids. That's that's more important and better than a steak for sure on most days. But put up your pictures for the kids. I'm teasing. Put up pictures of the kids. Put up pictures of your work or your church or your friends or your mom or whatever is important to you. But by all means, don't mock people for putting pictures of tacos. They are having joy in their eating and drinking, and you should enter into their joy. Now, he was overstating the case, but I think he's right. I don't want to see a bunch of that today on social media, so don't go home and tweet your lunch or whatever. But... um Whatever, we don't want to see that overdone. But that's the point. He's saying there is joy that can be lived. If, If the joy of life in the midst of a life filled with inequities and inequalities and suffering, suffering, in the midst of suffering, there can be an underlying joy, which does not mean giddy, silly, happiness, goofy. It doesn't mean that kind of stuff. But a foundational joy that says it is well with my soul even in suffering. And it will be well forever for those who trust God, for those who fear God. Listen, the fact that we don't know it all, if we feel we have to know it all and that's our God, it will end in misery and you won't sleep, like he says in verse 16. But if we're able to say, based on the revealed things, I trust you, with the unrevealed things, then what happens is there can be an explosion of worship that comes from us. Because what happens is we see there's the difference in God and me, and I can trust him, and I can rely on him, and I can celebrate him. This is how Paul relates, and this is how we'll close. In Romans 11, this is how Paul relates. He says, man, I don't know the mind of God. I know very little, and it causes him to worship, not to panic, not to cry, not to despair. Look at these verses. Um, Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And can you just feel that... God's knowledge is so much so deep, I can't figure out his ways. I don't know everything about God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Why does God allow this or that to happen in life, right? And how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means I can't figure it out, roughly, that's what it means. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be Repaid. Nobody, told, nobody knows more than God, is what he says. And so this is how he responds. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God, it is all about you, is a rough translation. To him be glory forever, amen. Here's Paul's response. I do not know the secret things of God, and that shows me the vast difference between God and me. But I do know what he's like, and I do know what he's done. I do know how he generally operates on, on the planet. There are, doesn't always operate the same way in every situation. And in those things, I can trust him because I know in the long term, he will mete out justice and he will glorify himself. And it will all come together and the story will end. It will all fit together in the end. And so today, I'm just saying, everything's from you, everything's to you, everything's about you. God, this is your universe. To you be glory forever, is what he says. Glory to you. And now I'm going to go eat tacos and take a picture of them. That's basically the the passage, is I'm going to have joy in all of this and trust you because I can trust you and that even in grief and even in suffering, there is joy. I mean, I'm to be careful. I know there's suffering people in the room. I do not mean to make this sound too simple. And we have to be very careful about how we communicate these things. Someone's suffering, we don't just piously pop out there, it'll all be okay in the end. Stop crying, it's going to be okay. No. Weep with those who weep. But hear a sermon like this on a passage like this when everything's going well, so when winter does come, we're prepared with this truth. So we're not flipping about these realities. We don't just go spreading these things, and especially, I mentioned earlier, something tragic happening in Colorado. We don't just gloss over that like it's no big deal. No, it's gut-wrenching. It's perplexing. I'm just saying wisdom can't be our God as if we're going to be able to figure all that out and answer it. We're going to be at a loss for words. So we weep with those who weep, and we have an inner confidence that God will work everything out And we live with the joy, even in the small things of life, eating, drinking, going to work, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a student, if you're in the marketplace, whatever you do, if you're retired and you have hobbies you give yourself to and volunteer work, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God with joy, knowing that ultimately he's got everything in control. And that's not a bumper sticker. That's not a Hallmark card. That is the reality of the Bible. And we can live in the good of this. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.